0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese.
2: We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on Earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our summer season previews Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.2, soon to be available online. This issue spotlights the theme of working with food, focusing especially on urban transformations, on work and play, and on market values. My guest this week is Annie Kempel, joining us to discuss her research on food sharing and the ripple effects of disordered eating. Annie is an applied anthropologist and registered dietitian. Annie, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Can you briefly share what you do and where you're based, where you're calling in from?
3: Yeah, so currently I work um, as the anthropologist at the American Board of Family Medicine and uh, their office is based in
1: Lexington, Kentucky, which is where I've lived for the past about 10 years. Great. And... Broadly, what does your work look at and what fields or fields, if it's interdisciplinary, um, do you situate your research in?
3: Yeah, currently I'm kind of at the intersection of primary care research and um, medical anthropology. So my dissertation was kind of more biocultural anthropology focused. So this has been a really fun, it's been a fun learning curve, but. How did you come to food, food studies? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Um, I started... Looking into the food studies literature back in undergrad in the late 2000s, um, you know, it was really popular at that time to be interested in growing food and local food. Um, and so, doing my uh, undergraduate degree in anthropology and history, I had some professors who were also very interested in it. And the moment they introduced me to the topic, I was just immediately
1: sold. And how did this particular project come about? Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how your background in food studies, background in anthropology and history, and then maybe some of your work experience came together to um, inform the research questions you you were asking here?
3: Yeah, so I'm also a uh, registered dietitian, and starting in 2016, I worked as a research dietitian and program manager on some grants at the University of Kentucky, Um, So I was regularly attending farmer's markets, community events, um, hosting cooking demonstrations, and kind of doing the anthropology thing of hanging out with people usually around food. Um, And so I had previous graduate experience in anthropology. And the more time I spent in eastern Kentucky, which is, you know, rural central Appalachia, um, the more that part of my brain got kind of reactivated. So I wound up going back to graduate school, um, completing my master's degree, and my advisor at the time, who's Sarah, who was Sarah Lyon at the University of Kentucky, absolutely incredible researcher, incredible person. And she convinced me to stay on um, to complete my Ph.D. And so this article was a chapter in my dissertation, and it was heavily informed by the time that I had spent, you know, eating and talking about food with all types of people um, across the state. But again, mostly in the, the eastern part of Kentucky, um, so community members leaders of nonprofits who were working with people to grow more food um, and other you know, local community
1: organizations. And in your piece, you note that disordered eating and eating disorders are not the same thing. So before we add, talk a little bit more about like the context of the research site and, and, um, and the methodology, I guess it's just a question of terminology and, and, and setting it up. So for our listeners, what's the difference in, in your view between disordered eating and an eating disorder and then also dieting?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that question was at the heart of a lot of uh, my interests and um, this chapter or this article. So the short answer is that eating disorders are diagnosed mental health illnesses and they're comprised of disordered eating behaviors. And there's an argument to be made, supported by a lot of research, that similarly, dieting is comprised of disordered eating. Um, It's just on a non-clinical level. And so really, again, that was the crux of my question. So, you know, what is disordered eating itself? How does it affect people? How does it move between people? And I would hate in the article or here to put limits on it or a specific, specific definition because it's really a range of behaviors and it's on a continuum So it can include things like restricting certain foods, feeling like you can't stop thinking about eating or food. And also those things that we stereotypically think of with um, an eating disorder like binging or purging, overexercising, obsessing with weight. Um, Again, there's this whole range of thoughts and behaviors that would fit under the umbrella of disordered eating. And... Myself and a good number of dietitians, mental health counselors, and other activists would argue that any degree of disordered eating warns care and attention. And in our you know, typical Western biomedical model, we have a way of putting boxes around things and expecting degrees of severity before we pay attention to them. And this is really not helpful and can actually be detrimental when it comes to these deeply embodied and emotional experiences like disordered eating. Um, I think I answered your question somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, you did, and I just wanted to draw attention to one of the terms you use to describe disordered eating—the phenomenon of disordered eating—as an, an umbrella, you know, the umbrella of disordered eating. So, it, it, does it have a broader kind of broader um, connotation um, than, say, the more specific behaviors of that are um, of, of an eating disorder?
3: So I would say that this is actually an area that, I mean, you're bringing up an area that is ripe for research because there really aren't set ways of looking at disordered eating or fully understanding it. And I think part of that has to do with a lot of these behaviors are not only on that continuum or range, but a lot of them are hidden. And so it's kind of a difficult topic to research or to have a really complete picture of.
1: Okay, so this brings up a question about methodology and setting up your research. Um, Can you tell us, before we dive into the research, some of the methods and sources that you used to get at your research questions? Um, So what is affective political ecology, which is really at the heart of your article here? um, And why did you use it here?
3: Yeah, so affective political ecology seemed like a good framework for understanding where dis- disordered eating comes from and how it moves in, um, into and between bodies, whether that's physician-to-patient or guardian-to-child. Um, and I read Effective Political Ecology to be really the whirlpools of media and science and politics and research advertising that tell us to, you know, eat X to lose weight, don't eat Y to reduce belly fat, Uh, These messages, wherever they come from, are incorporated into our minds and therefore our bodies, you know, much like nutrients are. So you're constantly consuming it without really knowing its component parts or what the deeper effects are. Um, So it changes our bodies as much as our thoughts and behaviors. And so effective political ecology really helped me to think through that by putting some guardrails up with which to think, because I think a lot of times with these behaviors, it can be easy to point fingers or blame individuals. But then as far as other methods that I used, it was a combination of the four previous years as a research dietitian managing those programs. Um, and then surveys that I distributed online in 2020. And then in depth, some semi structured interviews also conducted in 2020. Um, and so I had to very quickly shift the way i was going to collect data because of the shutdowns in 2020 um, and just the havoc of covid um, but given the relationship i had with members of the community and various community organizations this went as well as i could have hoped probably even better than if i had been there in person i was able to collect about 180 surveys which would have been or was way more than if i had just been standing at the farmers market handing out surveys um And so I advertised on Facebook. Um, It was picked up by some of the community organizations I'd worked with, and they kind of on their own decided to share the little advertisements. And um, I was able to
1: compensate participants
3: for their time, which I also thought was really important.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know, I guess a a question—if you can say a little bit um, more—I mean, given the topic of of research and of study here, question about accessing um, what you note in the article is. hidden behaviors right can you tell us a little bit more um and and maybe how covid impacted the research process and and what kind of pivots you made um in the research
3: yeah so originally when i proposed the research my plan was to spend a good chunk of time in you know the communities i was already spending time with but really like living there for a while and um doing a lot of what I did online, doing it in person. And I I don't know if that would have necessarily shown more of these hidden behaviors. I think that's another really huge gap in the literature is how do we pick up on these things? Because even in really intimate relationships, you may not admit that you regularly purge. Um, and I those things came out through um, conversations that I had kind of after the work was done, when I was presenting it to um, different groups from that part of the state. And they would kind of bring up, you know, like, I know someone who does this, or I know someone who engages in this, but we don't talk about it. And so some of those things kind of came up through these longer, broader conversations. Um, And I forgot your original question. I kind of went on a tangent. That answered it.
1: No, that answered it. (laughs) (laughs) That that, that answered it. But, um, your work d- draws on stories and on personal accounts, um, as well as the surveys. So, um, for those who don't know what the Eat Twenty Six survey is, is can you tell us more about what it, um, you know, the, the, its structure and why alone it's not kind of sufficient to help answer the the questions that you're you're looking at here.
3: Yeah, that that was a key piece I left out of the method. So in the survey, I included the EAT26, which is the Eating Attitudes Test, and it's a tool widely used um, in clinical settings to screen for an eating disorder. There are other tools, but I used this one specifically because it's a little more comprehensive, I think, and there's a good body of evidence that validates its use in both clinical and non-clinical settings and in diverse and even international communities. Um, so, it includes 26 disordered eating behaviors. An example that we would traditionally, like I said before, we would traditionally think of with an eating disorder. So, binging is on there, but then it also includes eating diet foods, being preoccupied with what you eat, being preoccupied with weight. Um, and so, this gives a sense of what people are doing, but it doesn't really give us an insight into how these behaviors make people feel, how they move between people, how they affect people's day to day lives. Um, And other things that may fit on the disordered eating scale, but aren't reflected in the survey. Um, I opened the article with a story that I think is a good example of how surveys can really miss the effective quality of some of these behaviors. Um, So I was talking to a woman and she was telling me about her mother, who I called Rose, and Rose lived an active life. um, And a few years ago, Rose was diagnosed with very high cholesterol, told to go on a low fat diet. She followed that diet meticulously. Um, The Christmas of that year, Rose baked her famous Christmas cake for her entire family. And the woman I was talking to found Rose on Christmas Day at the kitchen table just sobbing because she couldn't have that social joy and share that moment of eating a piece of that cake with her family because of her diet. Um, Heartbreakingly, a month later, Rose died from a heart attack. And her daughter said to me, um, it makes me sick that we didn't insist she eat a piece of that cake. And the way she said it still just gives me goosebumps. Um, because It just haunts me because she was clearly feeling physically ill that she didn't have that moment to share with her mother. Um, and so I think we just don't often think about these incredibly meaningful moments until they're disrupted. And these disruptions happen all the time. And not all of them are quite as dramatic as that one, but a lot of these moments do occur as an outgrowth of some of these disordered eating behaviors.
1: And these, the story that you just shared, um, uh, as well as the other research um, that you were undertaking was for the most part situated in rural Kentucky. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit more about the the context of the research site?
3: Yeah, so it's um, Eastern Kentucky is in the central Appalachian Mountains, um, very rural. Um, I honestly my I decided to focus on that area and I don't think anthropologists admit this enough, but it was partially convenience and a degree of familiarity. I had been in that community for years or working with that community for years. I do have to say it's a, my sample in particular was a largely white, cisgender, middle-class group. Um, And, you know, there's a whole bunch of other people looking at these topics within diverse communities. Um, Sabrina Strings is one that I bring up in the article, but there's a whole bunch of other activists working on that. But something else that kept me interested in this area are the number of stereotypes and myth-making around people who live in Appalachia. Uh, In particular, nutrition and public health studies have this undercurrent of painting the entire area as unconcerned with their health, which again, Rose's story shows, she was deeply concerned about her health. Um, And so just kind of seeing the mismatch between some of those undercurrents in the research and the lived reality on the ground was something that, again, really reactivated
1: the anthropologist in me. Thank you, Annie. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment to hear a little bit more um, about what you found in the course of your research.
2: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your
1: next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jacqueline Rowell talking with Annie Kempel about her forthcoming article on affective political ecology and the sociality of disordered eating in rural Appalachia, which will appear in Gastronomica's newest issue out soon, issue 23.2. The COVID-19 pandemic hit just as you were in the midst of collecting data, and we had spoke a little bit about how you pivoted your research um, methods uh, um, during this moment, how did the pandemic impact the eating behaviors that you were you were kind of observing and, and hearing about during this time?
3: Yeah, I definitely heard from a lot of people that food was a source of comfort. I experienced that myself too. Um, There's a lot of baking, a lot of learning to cook, partially because restaurants were closed, so there weren't really other options. Um, but it was also something that was safe and comforting, um, something to do with your kids because you weren't having to commute the hour home after work. Um, and I love this, like food should be a source of joy and comfort and companionship. It doesn't always have to be those things, but it can be without, you know, the guilt or the shame or the stress that I think a lot of times that we feel about baking a cake and eating it. Um, so I just, yeah, it was very, in that moment, I think. I myself and my participants got a lot of uh, got a lot out of having these conversations and you know sharing recipes and sharing what we were baking and cooking as we were all you know thrown into this very uncertain time. Um, but yeah, surprisingly, talking about food during the pandemic was a very enjoyable part of this research. On the other hand, um, there was some research put out from the Center for Body Image Research and Policy. That rates of eating disorders just ballooned during COVID. So there was, you know, a darker undercurrent, a darker side to being stuck at home. That depended on who you were with, what your relationship with food was like. Um, so yeah, there is there is some research showing that perhaps disordered eating behaviors increased during COVID. Um, so it was kind of a, a both and there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really interesting,
1: um, interesting kind of insight. I. I was struck reading your article um, by narratives of joy and play um, that is women's stories of using, of enjoying food and, and eating together commonly cropped up throughout the article. Um, was that surprising to you as you, as you did the research and um, how did you kind of make sense of that widespread phenomenon of disordered eating? more generally, not even, you know, um, within the confines of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was, you know, admittedly not the focus of, of your research. It was it was circumstance, really. Yeah, I think
3: any of us doing research at that time, though, kind of de facto had to become a part of the research. But yeah, that definitely was not my focus um, in general in this population. I was very surprised at the finding that men who responded to my survey um, and I also want to say everyone who participated in my study, self-identified as a man or a woman, Um, but men were significantly more likely to engage in disordered eating behaviors, which is surprising because we tend to think of dieting and eating disorders as things that largely affect women. Um, But in my study, women really struggled with the men in their lives following diets. It led to women having to cook additional foods, not be able to go out to eat with their family because there were no diet-specific options on restaurant restaurant menus, stuff like that. and honestly, I loved hearing that women felt joyful and playful with their food. Um, one moment that I read about in the article um, is a woman whose male boss is always following different diets, expecting his employees to also follow these diets. So for example, if he isn't eating carbs that week, he doesn't want anyone else in the office eating bread or pasta, or he gets, as she said, like deeply distressed, which you know, the deprivation of dieting and what it does to our brains is a whole other topic, but this woman who I interviewed just would not have it. Instead of letting her boss dictate what she could or could not eat, she decided to start eating lunch in her car, which another both and moment on one hand, incredibly sad for everyone involved. Um, this is a moment of social inclusion or th- this moment of lunch, you know, a social inclus- socially inclusive activity uh, became one she could no longer participate in. But on the other hand, a part of me was like, good for you. Um, you know, you got to enjoy your lunch. This is a moment of your day to enjoy your food. Good for you. But yeah, so this is just another example of how disordered eating, um, which switching between fad diets like her boss would do is definitely an example of disordered eating. Um, this is an example of how disordered eating so intimately affects the people around the person exhibiting the behavior.
1: Right. And at, this, at the heart of this is this phenomena. Of eating together and if I can just um, share a quote from your article uh, with listeners on um, page 60 and you're talking about um, another case um, the case of, uh, of a woman that you call Ivy in the article well Ivy wanted her husband to feel better eating together had become a point of tension so this was a key theme and one that you look at closer below that continually came up in the conversations Um, about disordered eating, many of them started in the doctor's office and deeply impacted the emotional and material texture of the home. And then a little bit further down, most women um, that you say that I interviewed expressed a similar sentiment. Um, I like sweets or I like to eat and express sadness and frustration at not being able to share the same foods they once could with their husbands or having to take on additional kitchen chores to accommodate new diets Um, There's a little bit of a twist here because you're you're kind of talking about um, adjustments to home home cooking, home provisioning um, within the frame of a response to medical diagnosis. Can you say a little bit more about um, how that affected your research?
3: Yeah, there was a good amount of. So, well, first of all, I do want to say the majority of interview participants were women. Um, so I think there's a whole lot more research that needs to be done on men's experience of this. So this is, this is painted through, you know, the women's, the mothers, the wives perspective, but from their perspective, their husbands would, um, be, have some kind of diagnosis, high cholesterol, um, high blood pressure, and would receive kind of generic lose weight (laughs) nutrition advice, um, which, Saying lose weight—that's not a behavior. Like, how do you how do you just lose weight? That's not like, I can go for a walk, and I know what that means. Um, and so there would be some going to the Google Doc to kind of figure out what am I supposed to do. And this led to various patterns of the men in their lives restricting their food intake. Um, so I think one example is um, they went. The woman's husband went uh, vegan for a while, so no animal products or seafood, and then slowly introduced seafood back into his diet. But she was just kind of having to juggle how to cook for her kids, herself and her husband in these different ways. Or another woman's husband just kind of completely cut out carbs. And so she went from making noodles for her kids to making like zucchini noodles, and anyone who has kids knows how difficult it can be to to feed kids, to have them finish their meals. So there were just these layers of um, emotional labor that were going into women having to manage. Something that, you know, was, they were undertaking these dietary restrictions in order to achieve a state of health, but the backlash of that wound up being a state of, you know, unhealth for the family and unknown health physiologically. We don't know if any of this actually helped with their high cholesterol or their high blood pressure. Probably not the high blood pressure. It was probably a very stressful environment,
1: but I can't say that for sure. I was really struck by um, your writing throughout is is layered with um, accounts of the social relationships and social encounters that shape eating behaviors, which is really at the heart of your of your research here. Um, And you also note that biomedical environments and medical expertise affects bodies. Can you say a little bit about this piece and the complexity of these different factors in in shaping disordered eating?
3: Yeah. And again, this is where effective political ecology was just incredibly helpful as a framework. Again, I think I said this before, but it can be easy to lay blame at someone's feet, you know, a doctor doing what they think is best for a patient or a mother worried about their child or their husband. But it's kind of unhelpful to assign blame that way. Um, There's a phrase going around TikTok, at least right now. I don't know if it'll still be around in a week, Um, but people are talking about almond moms. And from what I gather, it's a mother that puts her daughter or child on a strict diet or encourages it either explicitly or implicitly through her own dieting and overexercising behavior. Do I wish this wasn't a reality? Absolutely. But ultimately, what I wish is that those women recognize the networks of power they were being pulled by and into. Just the amount of money being made off of their suffering, like it is a type of suffering and their children's um, suffering by extension. Our food environment is just absolutely saturated with disordered eating messages, so much so that it seems normalized or even healthy. And just to be clear, it's not, it's not healthy. Like if we're thinking about health in a holistic way, and there are alternatives. Um, it has this body of, uh, or this body of work has recently come under a Tack for some you know valid reasons related to racial equity, but the underlying mission of uh, health at every size movement is pretty solid. And in epidemiology, um, that literature is referred to the fit but fat literature. Um, So it is backed up by some pretty solid research. And overall, again, I think the underlying mission um, is one that truly promotes health. Um, And so again, there are these alternatives. Um, Also, as a dietitian um, I'm also an intuitive eating counselor and intuitive eating is a great first step to stepping outside of this normalization of disordered eating that we just encounter every day
1: and I think this is a really um, kind of good time to ask you about what you're currently working on now you had mentioned um, as a dietitian so so what kind of work now that you have wrapped up that project are you doing? kind of day-to-day, um, and what are you looking ahead to? What's your next project? Yeah, so I started
3: as, um, or I started working at the American Board of Family Medicine in November, um, and so the number of projects I'm on are truly intellectually engaging. Um, they're very much primary care focused, so I am hoping as I build up my research portfolio, I'm hoping to get back into the world of food, nutrition, weight stigma, but I'm still kind of feeling things out a little bit when it comes to that, Uh, which if anyone listening is at the at the crux of primary care nutrition or primary care and disordered eating, um, I would love to talk with you, chat and see if we can, you know, connect and make some good research happen. But Specific projects, again, primary care focus, so looking at gender pay gaps within primary care, looking at what, what, does it, what does professionalism mean? You know, this big question about this abstract word. Um, a little bit about COVID, um, talking to doctors about long COVID. Um, so yeah, it's just my projects right now are all over the place, but very much hoping to get back into that food and nutrition world.
1: Thank you, Annie, for joining us. Is there anything um, else you'd like to share before before we wrap up? I don't think so. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to be on. Super. Thank you. And listeners will be able to read Annie's full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, our summer 2023 issue coming out soon. For details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us again next week and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes this summer. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.